Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. I want to talk to you about keeping peace in the church tonight. And I want to admit to you that sometimes it's difficult to keep peace in the church when you deal with certain people around Temple Baptist Church, right? I'm sitting here trying to worship, listening to Miss Margie, singing just a few moments ago. I receive a text message. Some of you know that our senior adults, or some of them, are down toward New Orleans. And uh, they are going down, going to the evangelism conference on Tuesday. I receive a text message from one of them. I'll not name his name, Dwight. He um, <clears throat> sent me a picture of the dessert that they are having at Mittendorf's down on the lake. It's a non-Baptist dessert that they're having looks like but uh just kind of rubbing it in i can tell dale's hand is in this i see him over there it's hard to keep the peace when you deal with these kind of people do you know what i'm saying i hope that you all don't text them while i'm preaching okay but afterwards you just kind of text them and let them know that you are praying for their spiritual well-being their discipleship do that afterwards acts chapter 21 verses 15 through 25 as we look at these verses tonight. And I do think as you read through these verses, you see just another narrative in Paul's ministry and his life and the life of the church. And I think what you see as you read through this is an effort to keep the peace of the church, to keep the church united. I want you just to see the way Dr. Luke records this. He, He says... And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Now, obviously, Dr. Luke was with them. He said, we were there. We we went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, brought with them a certain nation of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren gladly received us. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. Now stop there a moment. We know that Paul had been called to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, He had been called back. He was wanting to give a report of what was happening. Also, according to his letters, he was bringing this offering, this relief to the church in Jerusalem, which had gone through some difficult times. Paul had gone back, and he had known. Remember last week we talked that Paul knew that it would be a difficult trip for him. Paul knew that when he got to Jerusalem, he would face a lot of hostility, a lot of things that would be pushing back against him. And yet, he was determined to be about the will of God. So he goes, everything seems to be going well to start with. Notice he he gives the report, and what a report. I mean, sometimes we have groups who come back from short-term mission trips and they stand and they give a report of what happened. Sometimes we ask one in particular to say, hey, summarize the trip. Tell us what happened when you were in Nicaragua. What happened when you were in South Asia? Tell us about your trip. And I know some of you have heard those reports and you've been blessed. I have been when I've heard those reports of what God was doing. But could you imagine the Apostle Paul for a moment? Coming after his missionary journeys, all of his missionary journeys, and he 
he comes before the people, comes before the church, and he says, let me tell you what God is doing in the Gentile world. And he begins to relate how many are coming to faith and how churches are being planted, how the gospel is going forth. And, and look, this is unlike anything that they had ever known. This was the genesis of the missionary movement. This was the very beginning of what God was demonstrating all across the world, all across the empire. And he's telling the story. And it says, as they hear it, as they hear all these wonderful things, they glorify God. That's a great start, okay? They're glorifying God. They're praising God because they've heard of all of these wonderful things. But then notice this. It says in verse 20, And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to, for, to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from the things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So here they are. They hear this report from Paul. And they rejoice over it. And, and I believe it is a genuine, authentic celebration that they have, okay? I believe they respond to the good news. I believe they respond to the report in a positive manner. But then the pastor, James, here he is, the one who is responsible in so many ways for reaching the Jewish people in Jerusalem, for reaching out to sharing the gospel, keeping the church together. He says, I got I to gotta talk to you, Paul. There are some here who are hearing reports that you're going out and you're telling those who are ethnically Jew that they do not have to keep the customs. They do not have to be circumcised. They do not have to keep the law of Moses. Could you see the potential for disunity? Could you see the potential for a disruption in God's mission and God's purpose. Now listen, this is not the first time we've seen the opportunity for disruption to come. This is not the first time that you've seen a possible break in fellowship. Remember all the way back to Hebrews chapter 6 as the uh, Hellenistic widows began to complain that they were being mistreated or at least they were not getting the attention that they should even there there was this possibility of a church split there was a possibility of things going the wrong way and yet God provided an answer there God kept the unity of the church well think about think about Paul and Barnabas Think about them on that missionary journey as they recognized John Mark. 
and whether or not he would go with them on the next journey. And before you know it, as Chuck Swindoll says, you have a day when the missionaries duke it out one with the other. And I mean, it is a very sharp disagreement according to the Scripture that Paul and Barnabas disagree so much that they decide to part company and go in different directions. So I want you to see that all throughout the book of Acts, you have the potential of the gospel being undermined by division all throughout. And yet up to this point, God has guarded that effort. God in some way has used even divisions to bring forth strength and to be able to promote the mission of the church throughout the book of Acts. Here you see once again how God will address a potential division. You'll see once again how God will speak and God, as he will inform James, as he will inform Paul, as they will seek to keep the peace of the church. So here, here you have this plan that James and obviously the elders have thought up. They said, Paul, we've heard this. But there's no, listen, there's no evidence that James really believes this. I, I, I've studied this. I've looked at it. There are cer- certain people on different sides that say, well, this is a rebuke. James is rebuking Paul, but he is not. There is no evidence that he actually believes what is being stated. As a matter of fact, James says, let's bridge the gap. Let's do something to demonstrate to our Jewish brothers and sisters that we are not trying to denigrate the law, but rather we are certainly lifting up Christ. Now, how could he do this? How could they find some middle ground? Because if you read the book of Galatians, which was written before this event, and if you hear the message of Paul over and over again, you will hear Paul speak about how faith in Christ is the only thing that is necessary to salvation. I mean, you do hear him say that. You'll hear him speak about these individuals, these so-called Judaizers who would come down and try to make the Gentiles keep the law. How he'll try to make the Gentiles be circumcised. Paul will rebuke those individuals. And again, it had been decided in Acts chapter 15 that the Gentiles should not be subjected to such a bondage. Paul believed that, and Paul spoke about those kinds of things. But Paul never said that if you were ethnically Jewish, you did not have to be circumcised. He understood the ritual. He understood the law. He wasn't. He was trying to make sure that those in the Gentile nations could come into the kingdom without the burden, without the bondage of the Jewish rituals. That's what he was trying to do. So how could they propose some kind of compromise? So this is what James had thought up. you, you got to love a thinking preacher, right? How are we going to get out of this? James says, I tell you what you do. We've got these guys right now that's going through a Nazarite vow. Why don't you come in to show some goodwill, to show some uh, association with them. You come in. You join them. You take care of the sacrifices. You, you pay the expenses for those things. You, you do this. And try to demonstrate to your Jewish brothers and sisters that you are not a threat to the ethnic background that they come from. But rather, you are trying to demonstrate who Christ is and what Christ has done for them. 
why don't we do that? Maybe this will work. Now, James makes the proposal, and Paul accepts. You ever been amazed? I mean, just looking at this, think about that. Does that not amaze you a little bit, that Paul would accept such a proposal? I mean, Paul is known for being pretty blunt, right? When you read through, I mean, Paul is known for being blunt. Paul will address all kinds of threats that will come against the gospel. He, he, has, he has no problem. He has no problem proclaiming the good news of Christ, proclaiming what Christ has done and the freedom that we have in Christ. He has no problem doing that. So here's Paul who agrees to do what James says. Why does he do that? And how can he do it? I think Paul gives us a model. And I think he really does. When you look at this, we find a great model for churches today. And that is that there can be those moments in our lives where we stand upon the truth. We should never compromise the truth of God. We should never compromise the truth of the gospel. But listen, folks. There are those areas that we can demonstrate compromise we can somehow come together and demonstrate sensitivity to one another. We can demonstrate peace in the church. As long as it does not violate our truth, the good news of Christ, we ought to be about trying to find some common ground in the church, especially as you're trying to reach people for Christ. Uh, I was talking the other day with some folks who, we're suggesting this idea of all things to all men. Remember what Paul said, we've come in all things to all men. And Paul was the great example of doing that. I'm talking about he, 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 could, he could demonstrate a great and relevant witness without forfeiting God's values. Paul is wonderful about doing that. I think that's what you see here in this passage. Why was it such a big deal, I think, for some of the Jewish people about their heritage? Remember, we're always a product of our times. And you've got to think about the historical context here as well. At this point, probably A.D. 56, 57, somewhere in there, the people of Israel were really pushing back against the Roman rule. Now, they had always hated the Romans, and the Jewish people were very independent they were fiercely independent they loved their identity and they spoke about that identity time and time again and here in this time frame they are this this nationalism is just continuing to rise they're wanting to demonstrate who they are their jewish identity and that's what they're doing about this time don't forget later on in 70 a.d they're going to be destroyed because they push back against the Romans in such a way. So here you have Jerusalem that's just fomenting with this nationalism. They don't want to think about Gentiles in the world because what they want to do is overthrow the Gentiles. And here they are, and they hear that Paul is threatening their identity, threatening their very existence. That's the reason you're having issues, and that's the reason they're pushing back against Paul. But Paul makes this compromise in order to maintain peace within the church. 
Have you ever noticed we really don't argue much about the truth in the church? Not really. I mean, there are some people that will come and will talk about doctrinal things, and I love that. I love to be able to search the scriptures and try to find the truth of what God has said to us, what he has spoken. But most of the time when you have an issue in the church, it's, it's really not doctrinal. Not most of the time, right? I, I've pastored now a little while. And um, I will tell you that there have been only very, very few times that the church itself faced any kind of doctrinal issues. Now, there might have been one or two here or there that I talked to privately, but not really a widespread issue within the church that was about to cause division. Never really seen that much. I'm thankful for that, by the way. Aren't you? I'm pretty thankful. There are other churches, and unfortunately, there are other denominations these days that are going through a lot of division over doctrine. But we don't face that. So, what do we face? We face some of the, what I call, trivial issues in the church. I remember moving into one of the churches that I served, and I walked in the sanctuary, and I had noticed that there was like a lot of chip paint there in the sanctuary. A lot of things that, because of ministry and other things that they had done, that really the, the sanctuary was, was not very pleasing to look at. Now, I understand. I understand that this body right here is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I got that, okay? Don't, don't try to give me a doctrinal lesson. I know, I know you. I know we are the church. But I'm going to tell you, I, I had a little old school in me. I still got a little old school in me. And I came into the sanctuary and I saw that and I was kind of like, hmm, that just doesn't look that good. You know, and, and so I, I just remember when I was growing up, it was like, that's God's house. I, I know theologically, I, but I'm just saying that is associated with God. And look, it ought to look, it all look nice. Wouldn't you agree? Some of you would probably agree with me on that. It all looked nice. So, you know, it shouldn't look like this. So I came in and, and I said, you know, maybe we, ought to, maybe we ought to paint that part of the sanctuary up there. And they said, good idea, preacher. That's, you starting off in a good way. That's awesome. We're going to do that. I said, man, this is good. I'm offered a good idea right up front. You know, you're kind of feeling positive about things. We formed a little committee and... Uh, because that's what you do in a Baptist church, even when you go and paint the wall. We formed a committee, and uh, they got busy and, and all the things, and they started looking at this, and they started looking at that. And whoo, before I knew it, we had a full-fledged sanctuary renovation on our hands. And all I said is I wanted some paint on the wall. So it, it kind of developed into this sanctuary renovation, and I had these folks that were going here and, and, and going there, and they had all kinds of colors picked out and all kinds of changes coming along. And, and finally, the guy uh, that was heading up this committee is a wonderful man, man of God. Uh, I hate to tell you this. He used to be a dean over at Northeast. I know you don't think a man of God could come from Northeast over there, but he was a wonderful guy. And he had taken over, he was, and he was trying to work through these things. He called me up and said, hey, we got this coming in. The new pews are going to, we're going to have new pews and so on and so on. And I said, ho, 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 ho. I said, let's, let's back up just a, just a little bit. 
And he said, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, what's eating you, preacher? Would you tell me what's eating you right now? I said, man, we, we, got, we got to slow down just a little bit. But you said, you, I said, I wanted some paint on the wall. I didn't know it was going to be a half a million dollar project that we were going to get into. I said, just hold on. So we kind of worked our way through it. And all of a sudden, it got out that we were changing the colors of the sanctuary. I received nice little love notes. I received historical justification of why the colors were they, the way they were. Architecturally, these are the reason the colors are the way they are. You know, it's the old carpet thing. You always hear in the church, but you know there is a lot of truth in that. That you'll get more passion over the carpet than you will sometimes the doctrine and theology that we believe. I mean, seriously, I hate to say that, but you know we get more passionate about some of these other things. And I just thought to myself, what have I done? How dumb am I that I have come in and even suggested such things? And look, that wasn't the first time. It's not going to be the last time. But there are always these kinds of culturally sensitivity church sensitivity, whatever else. There are all kinds of things that we face. And they will come against us as a church and they will try to divide us from time to time. Things that are not theological. Things that are not doctrinal. It, because what happens, Satan loves to use these things. Listen, if Satan can disrupt his program and he can get us talking about one another and going in that direction, then we forget the purpose and the mission of taking the good news of Christ to our community and to the nations. He'd love nothing more. And look, what I'm reminded of is Satan has used these techniques. Well, he's used it ever since the church has existed. You see it here. You see it here. So here's Paul giving us an example of being able to keep peace in the church. He never compromises his message. He believes in the freedom of Christ. He believes that it is only through faith and only through grace that we can be saved. He has never said anything otherwise. But what he does recognize is the sensitivity of his brothers and sisters of Israel. And he says, if this will help, if this will bring some type of peace within the church and, get this, keep intact the witness of James and that church in Jerusalem. He says, if this will work, then let me do it. Let me do it. It's going to cost him something, by the way. Notice he says, Paul, if, uh, if you're serious about this and you agree to it, we want you to participate in this vow, and we want you to pay the, the sacrifices, for the sacrifices, pay the cost that's there. Now, there are four individuals, basically, that are participating in this vow. So each one is supposed to bring the appropriate sacrifices at the end of the vow. Now, the Nazarite vow for us is recorded in Numbers chapter 6. Nazarite vow, basically, you can't have any wine or any kind of produce from the vine. You can't touch a corpse. You got to keep yourself clean. You do not cut your hair. Famous Nazarite, Samson. He 
cannot cut your hair until the purification, until the ceremony is over, he says. And then notice this, Numbers chapter 6. I want to read this because it just reminds us of the cost that is involved here. Numbers chapter 6, verse 13. Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb in its first year without blemish as a burnt offering. One ewe lamb in its first year without blemish is a sin offering. One ram without blemish as a peace offering. A basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and their grain offering with their drink offerings. Did you get that? For each individual, they have to bring forth these sacrifices. It says, one male lamb for a burnt offering, one ewe lamb for a sin offering, one ram without blemish for a peace offering, a basket of unleavened... You begin to take that and multiply it by four. There would be quite a bit of expense. Now, see, some of us would have objected or some of us would have said, is there a budget line item somewhere in your church for this? I mean, can we run it through the budget line item and I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do it. You have, you have Paul, you have James doing whatever it takes to keep the unity of the church and maintain the testimony of Christ in the community. Paul is going to be willing to participate in this plan. He's going to accept this proposal no matter what it costs. Don't you love people that are selfless? That put the good of God and His kingdom and the church above their own personal preferences. Now, I'm going to tell you, friends, we all got personal preferences. Don't, don't say you, you don't. All of us have personal preferences. Now, they may not apply to certain things in the church. I'll be honest with you. When we were doing that renovation, I, wouldn't, I didn't really care if the color changed or it didn't change. Didn't have real big preference on that. I'd like for it not to be neon green or something like that. But, you know, I'm not a guy that's much into color and fashion and all that kind of stuff. You can tell, right? Probably. I, I didn't care about that. Hey, but I do have some personal preferences. I do. Even in the church life and church work. So do you. There's certain things I'd like to go this way. Certain things like to go that way. And I've always lived with folks that are under the impression that the pastor gets everything he wants. If this is the way we go through this structurally, it must be because the pastor wanted that. Let me just tell you something. That is not always the case. But you know what? The work of the church should not be about the personal preferences of any one of us. Not even the pastor himself. The work of the church ought to be bigger than our personal preferences. The work of the church should be about God's mission and what He is leading us to do. And even if it violates our personal preferences, if it's for the glory of God, may it be for the glory of God. 
And may we praise him for those things as we see his work accomplished. I mean, Paul, this tremendous, tremendous missionary, strong in conviction, strong in his faith. He is willing to, he is willing to become all things to all men if that is what is necessary to win some to the kingdom. It's a great challenge for us. A great example for us. You've got to admire one, James, the pastor, trying to work through these moments. You've got to, <laughs> you've got to admire Paul, who takes these men, says in verse 26, being purified with them, enters into this moment where he can reconcile himself, even if he's misunderstood, even if he's misunderstood, to reconcile himself to his Jewish brothers and sisters. I think this passage can speak so significantly to us as God's people. It is still so applicable to us today. And I hope and pray that it would challenge us to do whatever it takes to maintain the peace of God's church. As long as we do not compromise the truth, may we be willing to see the peace of God reign in His people always. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You. God, we come first of all and we thank you for the sweet spirit that we feel here at Temple Baptist Church. We thank you for the unity of purpose and vision that you have given us. And God, I pray that you would protect that daily. And I pray that, Lord, you would give us firm convictions and you would give us tremendous wisdom. I pray that you would model us not just in the example of James and Paul, but that, Lord, that we would follow the example of your Son, the Lord Jesus, who, was, who willingly humbled himself to become a man, to die upon the cross, Lord, for our sins. May we demonstrate that humility this day and every day we serve you. Lord, we praise you tonight for who you are. And we praise you for what you're going to continue to do in our family, in our church. We pray these things now. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?